We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two-part episode. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode, and then come back for this one. Yeah, I thank you for saying that, and I also recognize that that's not your job to say that. That's that's on us as white people. And I think, you know, one thing in particular, right, those unheld conversations are unheld because so many of us white people benefit from the structures that are upheld by our silence and that toxic silence is so poisonous and you know even even as a beginning step which is not even close to really beginning to do the work is the stark silence of oppression when it comes to people who still refuse to say black lives matter in your book, you write that to say Black Lives Matter is one, to see Black people as human beings and not racist stereotypes, two, to affirm the human dignity and the value of Black people as equal to all other people, and three, to challenge the hearer and reader to consider what it means to create a social order that values the lives of Black people in all faucets of their existence. And I just see even just that beginning step of the unwillingness to say that or the absence of saying that is is a toxic, toxic silence. And of course, there's more to do beyond that, without a doubt. Those conversations unheld is an incredibly toxic, toxic environment that is just perpetuating oppression. It is. And that's what privilege often does, right? It gives you the option of opting in or opting out or speaking up or remaining silent. And what this moment, as moments like this before, have called people of goodwill to is to lay down that privilege and say, yes, I could remain silent. Yes, there is even a benefit, perhaps, to me personally for remaining silent and say no who I understand the human community to be as a whole does not permit me to remain silent. And so this incessant attack on even the statement Black Lives Matter, the discrediting of it, the um, dismissal of it is just yet another spoke in the wheel that turns toward racial injustice. If we can just get everybody believing, or if we can just get white people believing that to say Black Lives Matter means that you're saying that you don't matter. Well, that's not true. That's actually a lie. Um, all my life, you know, I've heard people say, oh, we have to save the whales. The whales are in danger. We have to save them. Not one time did I ever hear anybody retort, well, all fish matter or all mammals matter. You know, I've never heard that. 
I would hear people go, okay, yeah, well, go ahead, save the whales. So when people speak, speak up and say Black Lives Matter, it's met with what? <laughs> well, all lives matter. You know, that's, that's, that's not um, a constructive, viable way toward equality. Because what the data shows and what people's, many Black people's everyday lived experience shows is that, in fact, our lives do not matter in the same way as white lives. And so since that's the case, that we need to change that. But again, as we've already established, like dismantling white supremacy, dismantling racism is white people's work to do. We didn't create these structures as black people. And ultimately these are systems and structures that have to be dismantled by you. Yes, black people, people of color need to be squarely at the table in the reconstruction of these systems, but the destruction, deconstruction of them need to be done by white people. But what are we continuing to be met with too often? Silence. Mm -hmm. Let's not talk about it. Let's just keep things the way that they are or just as bad, all lives matter. And back again to your thought on, on groundedness, right? There's, there's something to be said for the fact that when this disruption that we as white people need to do comes from a place of truth and beauty and love and honoring our neighbor, it is grounded. And it is, in a sense, it's it's almost contemplative, right? It's deeply intertwined and deeply connected. It is in the ground of our being. It is rooted to everyone else. It is just a really pure place. And I think that people fear that disrupting the status quo is, is just uh, flailing or, you know, this kind of thing that's not this deeply grounded uh, choice or movement or willingness. You know, there is an African proverb um, in philosophy titled Ubuntu that says, I am because we are. That does not only apply to people of African descent. That philosophy is one that applies to all of humanity, right? It's deeply theological in understanding ourselves as coming from one source ultimately. And the connectedness and the interconnectedness of us all, when that is fractured, actually hurts the whole. And so this sense of groundedness, to be grounded in oneself is to understand our interconnectedness with others, not just those who look like us, not just those whom we like, not just those whom we agree with, but as a human community, the interconnectedness. And so clearly racial injustice, racial terror disrupts that severely. We've, that's happened throughout history and it's happened um, throughout the history of this country. To have black people inscribed in the constitution as three-fifths of a human being, you are already setting things up as here are the real people and here are the subhumans over here. The repair of that work, the acknowledgement of that work for the purpose of understanding our interconnectedness to each other so that there is not just this false sense of unity, right? You hear people 
talking about, oh, you know, we just have to be united. We just have to be united. Look, the chances of there ever being quote unquote unity is slim to none. Like we can barely get unity around the issue of dinner in my house, let alone <laughs> any kind of major <laughs> way of existence in the world. But just because we might not be able to have unity of thought and mind and heart all the time does not give us an excuse to function in this hierarchical way of this group of people on top and this one on the bottom. But to be able to um, live into a vision of a world, a vision of a country, a vision of a community where all people are truly respected and valued and that meaning black lives do indeed matter as white lives matter. We need white people to do that work. Amen. In conversations that I have with Caucasian persons, white persons, what I sometimes meet is a sense of helplessness. And I'm speaking about people of goodwill, you know, not people who are throwing the blue lives matter or the all lives matter kind of, you know, mm-hmm. smokescreen up, but people who, who acknowledge that it's on us to dismantle white supremacism and, and systems of privilege. And yet there's this kind of almost sense of, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. And I know that it is not the job of black persons or persons of color to educate white persons, but it is our job to learn. So I'm curious if you have any resources, books, websites, or anything like that, that you would commend to the white people of goodwill who want to take those first steps towards doing the work that needs to be done? One of the books that I would recommend for first understanding some of how we got to where we are is a book titled White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. That book was written by Dr. Carol Anderson, who is a historian at Emory University. And I like to recommend that book because one of the things that we know is that history has been redacted in some very curious ways over time. And God only knows exactly what people have been taught and how they've been taught it. And so I recommend that book, not that's not the only book, you know, historical book that's important to read, but number one, what she does is a great job of connecting the dots of how since Reconstruction, the time at the end of slavery, of of legalized slavery, up until the election of President Barack Obama, kind of how we got from there to this point as it relates to racism and white supremacy. And so basically what I understand her deposit in this work is that after every step of what would be perceived as black progress, in other words, you know, the um, obliteration of, of slavery, of legalized slavery into reconstruction. Well, what we know about reconstruction, it did not reconstruct things for an equitable and just society 
for Black people. And so you go from Reconstruction into Jim Crow and into all that happened there. And then you see the civil rights movement and going from the civil rights movement, um, these perceived gains, if you will, with, and the um, advent of affirmative action. And then right after that comes, you know, the appointment of Clarence Thomas and conservative judges on the U.S. Supreme Court. And then, oh, the quote, war on drugs, which Michelle Alexander and others have helped us to know that that really wasn't a war on drugs, but rather an opening to the further criminalization of black and brown people and the funding of the for-profit prison system. So, you know, that, so all of these at the one point gained and then it's met with this huge backlash all the way up to the election of President Barack Obama, which many saw as, see, look how much progress we have made on race relations in this country. We've elected a black president. Look at us, we have arrived. Well, not so much. Look after the election of Barack Obama, what happens next? The election of Donald Trump, who could not have been in every way the antithesis of Barack Obama in terms of his intellect, his persona, his respect for other, you know, in every way, in every possible way, he is the antithesis of what Barack Obama represented. And so again, that, that you know, what some have titled white lash coming afterwards. And so when people say, where do I begin? It's helpful to have some sense of understanding, not only where we are, but even in recent history over the past hundred plus years, how did we get here? And what are the kinds of things we need to do going forward? Listen, every time I see people insistent that no matter what overtly racist things a group is doing, for example, whether it's the young men marching on the campus of the University of Virginia in Charlottesville with tiki torches. And that was resemblance of what? A night ride. That's what the Ku Klux Klan used to do in the middle of the night to terrorize black people. They'd ride in the night, carrying torches of fire, burning down homes, burning down communities, burning crosses, threatening people. And what comes after that? The president says, oh, you know, they're fine people. There's no real condemnation of that, of that kind of behavior. And so if we're gonna be serious about the what can I do as a white person, if you identify as a well-intended, well-meaning white person who wants to make a difference, my recommendation is in addition to kind of understanding how we got to where we are, number two, start where you are. Open your eyes wide and look around you. If you look around your place of work and all the people that are hired and that work in positions that pay more than a minimum wage are white and all the people that work in positions that pay lower wages of people of color, start asking some questions. Look around your neighborhoods. If your neighborhood, you look around and you don't see black people ask, why are, what's 
happened over the years with how neighborhoods and have been set up and redlining that's happened within the housing industry and gerrymandering with political districts. You know, what are the conversations you're willing to have? This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. I was talking with a colleague over the past few weeks and she said to me, you know, um, I can't even talk to my sister about the mask issue because, you know, the way that the president of the United States has made a public health crisis, a political divide is nothing short of criminal. But what it's also done is you have people who wear masks, all political persuasions, um, sort of pitted against people that are supporters of the president who refuse to wear masks. And so here I am talking to this white woman who is saying that, you know, she just prefers to not have a conversation about masks with her sister as a way to keep the peace, keep the silence. And so I'm saying as point number three, no, this is the time to speak to your sister, to speak up to your brother, your dad, your uncle, your aunt, your neighbor. This isn't the time to retreat into silence and say, well, that's their opinion. Let's just gather together and just nobody talk politics, religion, or masks. No, this is the very time where you as a well-meaning individual need to look right in your circle of influence and start broaching what can be seen as difficult conversations to say, you know, we can't keep supporting these kinds of things anymore. We can't keep pretending that black people are valued in this country in the same way as white people. We have to look around and see how we can influence the change right where we are in our neighborhoods, in our churches, faith communities, schools, moms groups, all these various kinds of spaces need to hear a voice for Black lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. So co- quick comment before I have a question. Uh, before I, I have a very particular question. Before that, though, I wanted to say, and I really appreciate this, it just keeps coming back the way you started this conversation, embodiment and grounding. I don't know how to, I'm just knowing my privilege as a white person and, and talking with other white people I get the sense that there's a lot of white people who don't have bodies. And what I mean by that is they're in their heads. They really are in their heads and they are following a, a, an ideal and a thing that's been given to them. And that's their identity. Their identity is they've been told by whoever, this is who you are and they buy it. And what you said at the beginning about 
in a community, grounded. You went there. You were at Ferguson. You saw it. You heard it. You smelled it. You tasted it. You felt that community and how interconnected it was. And this idea of that African proverb of I am because we are. That is the truth of what it means to be a human being. I I don't know. I'm still working through that, trying to make sense of that for myself, but I just wanted to make that comment. Here's my real question that I want to get to. What are you working on now? Because I know, I mean, right now we are in the midst of this. You wrote this amazing book and now we have all this stuff happening. Are you writing or is there something else going on? What is the project happening for you right now? I am, but I just want to speak to that point about the body. Sure, please, please. White people. So from my perspective, and I think some other scholars have written about this, white supremacy has disembodied the white body. Yes. Talked about. Um, number one, it's always objectified, right? Yes. And also when you talk about color, that bodies, color, we know that these are social constructs. Of, right. Race is a social construct. And so if white is the norm, the white body is the norm, if you will, right. then there's nothing to think about in relation to the white body, right? That That is, that's the standard. That is, that's the norm. That's the prototype. That's the white Jesus. That's why they hold tight to white Jesus, white Santa, white every, that is what it means to be human. White supremacy has disembodied and disconnected white people, very bodies they inhabit. That's right. Amen. That's, that's exactly what it feels like. That's exactly what it feels like. I'm bumping into that. People don't have bodies. Right. Because whenever race, even the word race, it's never talking about the white race. It's always talking about another race, but never the white race. You don't even hear people talk about whiteness as a race. How many times have I had people say to me, oh, Dr. Francis, I teach my children not to see color. I remind Sorry. them <laughs> that when you teach your children not to see color, you teach them not to see me or anybody else exactly. because white, remember, is a color. Yes, right. Brown is a color. Tan is a color. And so this whole dismissal and denial of anything other than white as something deviant and otherized just further disembodies the white body and the people that inhabit it. So to not even have to see it, to even look for a white person to look in the mirror and see her or himself as a person of color because white is a color. Mm. Didn't you get the 64 pack mm. of, of uh, what are they, uh, the crayons? White's a color. That's right. So, yeah. I totally appreciate that. Thank you so much, because I, I thought I was losing my mind. Thank you. And, and, and the work of reconstructing that body will feel like the equivalent of helping fish to see the water around them. Yes. It is the narrative. It is the ethos that white people are born into, as well as everybody around. People will often say that... Anybody can be racist. That no matter what your race is, anybody can be racist. 
I contend, as well as many other people do, that that in fact is not true. Anybody can discriminate. Anybody can have preference. But racism is attached to power. And the way the structure is set up in this country, white supremacy is the power. And so to say that, well, anybody can be racist or to call a black person racist, I'm like, that, that's just fundamentally not true because in this society, the way the structures are set up, that racism is attached to the power of white supremacy. And that is something that black people do not have or any person of color does not have. To, so remind you of the question about your recent work. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Thank you. So I am currently writing a book that is a follow-up to Ferguson and Faith, because as we know, so much has happened since Ferguson. I was very curious to go back and find out what are some of the things that have happened? Where are people seeing um, acts of progress? Where have things maybe gone back a little bit into a place that people didn't desire? Uh, what has surprised them? What are you know, what are some of the beautiful things that have happened, but what are some of the challenges as well? And so I um, went back and have conducted many interviews to get that information, but I am also including reflections on what is happening today. You know, again, we never knew or didn't anticipate that a movement for racial justice would emerge um, in the middle of a global health pandemic. But this is what injustice does, right? Injustice doesn't work on the timetable of, of health professionals. That when an act of injustice, like we saw with George Floyd and his horrific killing, that was too much for many people to bear. Um, and to see the responses around the country where in every city you can think of, you had people getting in the streets protesting. Um, I am capturing some of that in this new book too and offering reflections on that and um, where it is that we understand ourselves to need to go from this place if we're going to be serious this time about creating a more racially just society to addressing the issues related to policing in this country that undisputedly negatively affect black people in ways that they do not affect white people. How many times have we heard people say, well, police don't only kill black people, they kill white people too. Um, I'm really curious to see the footage of unarmed white people that have been killed over the past six years. First of all, I wish it was true that that hasn't happened. I hope it hasn't. Like, I don't want to see anybody killed in this way. But this continual narrative of, oh, this police do this to everybody is a lie. And so if we're going to really move into a future filled with hope, we've got to redress this and construct and govern ourselves in a way where black lives will indeed matter in the same way as white lives. Dr. Gunning Francis, I know we're out of time, but you just what you've just said, 
it just inspires me to ask you uh, what what does give you hope at this point in time or what inspires you or what sustains you however best you'd like to frame that question but but I'd really love to know what gives me hope during this time is seeing such a broad coalition of people being willing to risk their own health in the middle of a pandemic to say we cannot be silent to the racial injustice that exists in our time. What gives me hope is when I see school districts around the country saying, we're removing police officers from our schools. We need to disrupt this school to prison pipeline that is disproportionately sending black and brown students into juvenile justice and beyond. We've got to start disrupting that and investing in supports that are going to lift up and help them and not criminalize and demonize them. These are things that, that give me hope. Thank you. One final thing about a word of hope. I am a mother. And I know that in Portland, where we are having to witness thousands of people being terrorized by folks that have been deputized by the President of the United States and the federal government to go and act as police and they are doing harm and they are hurting them and what is happening there ought to be of grave concern to everybody. It is unjust of epic proportions and needs to stop. One of the things that I remember hearing over the past week or so is about the mothers that are standing out there in protest together. Now, to be clear, it's not new for mothers to gather in protests, like we've been doing that for a long time. But to hear that put before the public in that way, to say moms are out here being tear gassed, moms with no weapons, no doing no harm, standing, exercising their constitutional right, they're being tear gassed and harmed. For me, as a mother, when I think about what gives me hope, is not only seeing other mothers stand and join in this work of racial justice, but also when I look into the beautiful faces of my own children and children all around me, when I see who they are and all that they have blossomed into up until this moment and all that yet lay ahead of them, I know that unless I and many other people really take seriously the work of doing racial justice. That directly impacts the quality of their life. And so when I, when I look in their faces and I see the hope and know the hope that Robbie and I have for their lives and so many other children's lives and the hope that we believe that God has for them, that's my inspiration. That's my motivation. That's a huge part of the skin I have in this game to say that if we're going to be serious, we've got to be willing to bring our whole selves, our mind, body, and spirits, open our eyes wide, look in the faces around us, realizing that we're interconnected and that either we are going to be able to live faithfully in that way or we're all going to continue to suffer 
and unfortunately black people even more so disproportionately. So that's where my hope is also, my inspiration is in, in these young faces. That's where my life is. Thank you so much for joining us today and for, yeah, just giving us this time and, and, and your voice to the, the truth of what's necessary today and what's, what's demanded of all of us. So. Well, well, thank you all for the time. And more importantly, thank you for uh, the work that you're doing, the spirit to which you bring to that work. And mm. um, we just have to trust that it is making a difference, right? It's so easy yeah. to just get despondent and like, what's the use, right. you know? It, it, but we can't, we can't, we can't. People before us didn't, or when they did, they kept holding each other up and helping each other saying, come on, we can make it. And, um, and we can too. The generations coming after us are depending on it. So um, thank you. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There, you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.